0: Uh, we're going to jump into Psalm 82, and one of the reasons that we're going to jump into Psalm 82 from Psalm 9 was because this theme of justice and injustice and the afflicted, that they show up almost identical vog- vocabulary in both places. And so if you were here two weeks ago, we talked about making much of the throne of justice in the face of our own injustice. And so one of the postures of David that we learn is that rather than respond by taking matters into his own hands, he made much of the throne of the Lord. He drew near to the Lord. That's one side of the coin, right? There's another side of the coin for a believer that when we encounter injustice in our world, should it evoke another response other than making much of the throne of justice? Does that sort of trickle down? Does that sort of uh, force us or compel us to do more than pray and to do more than wait, And I think what we see in the passage is it does. So Psalm 82, a Psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Let's pray. Father, we turn our hearts to a a difficult passage and we do pray for wisdom, for clarity, for a right dividing and preaching and hearing and doing of the word. Father, I pray that uh, our conduct that you call us to, we would not be guilted into it, but that we would see it flowing out of this new identity. You have made us new men and new women formed after the image of your son If we would behold that truth this morning, then all of this makes sense. So, our Father, I do pray that you would uh, be with your servant and bless your people. And we exalt you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, there was a really, really important meeting that happened uh, a couple thousand years ago. And without this meeting, I don't think any of us would even be here today. And the meeting I'm talking about is talked a little bit about in the book of Galatians and the Apostle Paul, who's kind of a latecomer to the party, that, that he's sort of laying out his credentials and he's talking to the church in Galatia, right? The church is there and he's trying to make a, a case for his pedigree and, and why he has the right to preach what he's preaching. And he talks about this council meeting where he goes and he goes down to Jerusalem and he meets with Peter and he meets with. James, Jesus's brother, he meets with John and the other apostles, and and Paul's a latecomer. He did not spend three years with Jesus when Jesus had his earthly ministry, and yet uh, a great portion of our New Testament was written by this guy. And so people are kind of scratching their heads, saying like, "Wait a minute, dude, where are you, where are you been? Like, what right do you have to call yourself an apostle?" And so what Paul does in Galatians which should should be kind of ironic because Galatians is one of the books where he makes his biggest defense of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. He makes that appeal in Galatians, but before he gets into laying that out, he talks about this council meeting that he had. And in that meeting, he is explaining his credentials to the, the pillars of the church, And he's telling them, look, I met Jesus this way and look, I went over into Arabia for a few years and then I met this dude and then I went away for 14 years. Then I came back and got all my credentials. And so Paul sort of gets the right hand of fellowship from the pillars of the church. And they recognize it in the same way that the the apostle Peter had been given divine grace to take the gospel to the Jews, that Paul had been given the same grace to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And we're all Gentiles. Most of us are probably Gentiles in the room, right? We wouldn't be here without that, but without his work. Now, here's the thing that in Galatians, you know what Paul also talks about? The last thing out of the mouths of the pillars of the church, as they gave him the right hand of fellowship and sent him out with their blessing to preach to the Gentiles. It was this. We only ask of this one thing that you do not forget the poor. And what did Paul say? He says, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, connect the dots here because Paul's going to go and preach a gospel of justification by faith alone. You're made righteous, not through your works, not through circumcision, not through your Jewishness, but through faith in Christ. And that's going to have implications that will send the gospel across the world, right? Africa and India and Europe and eventually America, right? Like, Like that gospel is going out. But here's what Paul is saying at the beginning of Galatians, that the gospel of Jesus does not just reconcile black people and white people to Jesus and therefore to one another. It doesn't just reconcile Asian people to African people, to Indian people, because we're all reconciled to Jesus. Right. He says the gospel will also reconcile class groups. Think about it. The gospel is not just reconciling ethnicities. The gospel also reconciles classes, the rich and the poor who are at home in the same family of God, worshiping the same savior. And at that council meeting, that was the last thing that Paul heard before they sent him out. Don't just be caught up in ethnic reconciliation the gospel will also transcend gender and it will also reconcile classes. I think what you get in Psalm 82 is another council meeting, except it's not called by men. It's called by Yahweh. It's called by the Lord. And therefore, Psalm 82:1 says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the Hebrew, it's in the assembly of El, right? El as in Elohim. So this is God's counsel, right? And in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. The reason I said this passage is difficult because we wrestle with who are the gods right there. Now, we're going to get to that later in the sermon, but I want to tell you, this is the only time this is used in the entire Bible. This idea of El holding a council meeting, And in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment, right? You you will not find that anywhere else in the Old Testament. And so here's what I want you to think about for a moment, that whatever is going on here and whoever is into the meeting, this meeting here is important because God himself is presiding over it. And whoever he summons, whatever he wants to talk about, it's important, right? Now, what I want to do is sort of unpack this, right? So what's the purpose? Why is God calling this meeting? What's the purpose of the meeting? Now, stay with me here. The, the Psalms touch on a lot of stuff. They touch on the temple and worship and our fear and, and, and doubt. And when God, what do we do when God feels distant and, and the joy of him drawing near to us, the Lord sort of being our shepherd. These, these Psalms that we sing on our march to Jerusalem, the Psalms are really like, man, like they're all over the place. And here's the thing. God doesn't call a meeting for any of that, right? This here meeting right here is not to talk about the temple. It's not to talk about your fear and your loneliness. It's not to talk about how you feel when God is near. It's not to talk about the Lord being your shepherd. This here meeting right here at the subject matter is the weak and the fatherless and the afflicted and the destitute and the needy. And you see it all in verses three and four, give justice to the weak. And the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them, right? So, the subject matter, the purpose of this meeting, this council meeting, is because God wants to talk about the poor. And He wants to talk about the orphan. And He wants to talk about the widow. And He wants to talk about the needy. Now, this isn't the first time this concern of the Lord shows up in the book of Psalms, it showed up in Psalm 9. Psalm nine was written by David. Psalm nine is in book one of the Psalter. The Psalms are divided up into five books. And so in book one, a lot of David's Psalms are there. And Psalm nine written by David in the first book, these same vocabulary words come up and then you skip over to the book three and now this is a different author. His name is Asaph and you know what's different? Different author, different book, different time of writing and you know what's not different? The poor. It's as if God is saying, I don't care what era in history it is. I don't care who's writing it. Men change, times change, but my heart for the afflicted does not. And here's what we're starting to learn about the songs. That the Psalms are not just concerned with King David and his journey, but it's also concerned about the people who never wrote a word that made it into your Psalter. The Psalms aren't just occupied with the plight of the king of Israel, but also the peasants in Israel. The Psalms are not just concerned with the person living in the palace, but the person living in crowded houses because they staying with Grandmama Nim and Great Grandmama Nim, right? The Psalms are not just concerned with those who have power. It's also concerned with those who have none. The Psalms aren't just for people like David, who has the time to sit on a stoop and study constellations and stars and see the beauty of God in creation. The Psalms are also for people whose heads never look up because their lot is hard. You see what happens? God cares. And whenever they creep into the background of the hearts of God's people, what God does is shove them right back in the front. Whenever it's easy to think the Bible is just consumed with King David and his poetry and his life. God says, no, no, no. David is a servant. But guess what? What about the folks who are not writing? I still care about them. Whenever they recede in the background of our hearts and lives, what God does through scripture is push them back right to the front. And he says, I care and I see and I love. I've been thinking about it this whole week. Just I think the way it's just kind of easy to shield our lives from the poor. That it's easy to not live near them. And it's easy to not send our kids to school where they go. And it's easy to not go to grocery stores where they frequent. And it's easy to not drive down streets or part of the city where they live. It's really easy to be insulated. And that's what money does to you. Money starts to allow you and I to be insulated from suffering and hardship. And here's what God is saying. I'm calling you to see. And it took me a step further. Right. Because I think when I think about poverty, I think there's are sort of degrees. Right. And, and and this book that I'm reading, it's kind of rocking me. Right. And it's talking it's talking about the invisible, the invisible ones in America, the working poor. And it's written by David Schipler, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning author. And this is what he talks about, the, the, the working poor. And he makes the case that that you probably saw him this week, but you just didn't know you were seeing them that they might have cut your grass, they might have washed the dishes that you ate on when you went to a restaurant, they might have picked up your trash, they might have substitute taught your teachers this week, right, that he's making the case that there is a whole segment of America that they're right on the fringes and they're right in our faces every single day and we don't see And here's what he says about the working poor in America. These invisible ones are neither totally helpless nor independent, right? That their lives, it's a mix of bad choices and bitter providences of roads not taking and roads cut off by the accident of birth or circumstance. It's difficult to find someone whose poverty is not somehow related to his and her unwise behavior to drop out of school, to stay in unhealthy relationships, to do drugs, to be chronically late for work. And it's difficult to find behavior that is not somehow related to inherited conditions of being poorly parented, poorly educated, poorly housed in neighborhoods from which no distant horizon of possibility can be seen, not taught how to handle money or effective study habits. How to define an individual's role in their poverty is a question that has shaped the debate of welfare and other social policies. Here's what he's saying, that that if you're conservative, then you tend to think that the poor, they got themselves into that situation because they just didn't try hard enough, right? right. right? And then if you're liberal, then you think it's the man, it's the system. The system messes over people. And what this guy is saying, it's both. And it's hard to nail down the root cause. It's a mixture of both. And he goes on to say, here is what we do know. Their personal mistakes have larger consequences and their personal achievements, they yield smaller returns. You get that? An inconvenience to the average middle class family, something like minor car trouble, a brief illness, a disruption of childcare—what What is an inconvenience to the average middle class person? It's a crisis to the poor, for it can threaten their ability to stay employed. For practically every poor family, then the ingredients of their poverty its part financial and part psychological. Part personal and part societal, part past and part present. Every problem magnifies the impact of the others and are all so tightly interlocked that one problem can produce a chain reaction of other problems. And he gives an example. A rundown apartment can cause a child's asthma to flare up which leads a mom to call for an ambulance, which generates a medical bill that cannot be paid, which ruins her credit score, which then hikes the interest rate on her auto loan, which forces her to purchase an unreliable used car, which then jeopardizes her punctuality to work, which then confines her to poor housing, which then limits her for promotions and earning capacity. You see, see when we think in simple categories, what he's saying is like, don't do that, right? That we have to approach the poor with new nuance and skill and wisdom. And he says, when the normal middle and upper class person encounters a setback, it's like a common cold. But when the poor encounter the same setback, he says, it's like pneumonia. You hear the weight of that? The little stuff that if you got memes that you can, I can find somebody to watch my kids for a day. My car getting broke, I, it's broken. I can call somebody and we can kind of work rides out. But when that happens to someone and they're living on the brink of society, that is not just a common cold. That one thing is pneumonia. Same sickness, different effect on the life. Now, why, why go there? Because it, they're right under our noses, family. And here's the thing, this song doesn't ask the question, well, how did you become fatherless? Let me see if your reason for becoming fatherless merits my attention, right? This song doesn't say, well, how did you become afflicted? And how did you become weak and needy, right? It doesn't ask the question with how you got in the situation you're in. What the Bible is saying is God cares about the situation you're in, period. You see? God cares. And this might be you this morning. And I want you to know that you're welcomed here at this church. We believe the gospel reconciles us to Jesus and to each other. And what we have, if we're tracking with Scripture the right way, it's not because we're special. What do we have that that, that we can say? We got on our own. What do we have that we can say? It was my might, my strength, my intelligence. The scriptures move in an entirely different direction. All things comes from the hand of the Lord. Everything, right? And so how things are distributed, there is no room to say me and my and I, I did this. God says, no, you didn't. I gave you that. It's a different way to think about what we have and who we are. Now, the next question is, who are the people at the table? We know the purpose of the meeting and it's to talk about the poor. Well, who are the people God is having the conversation with? Look, I'm telling you, man, this is a this passage wrecked me this week. So much time spent trying to figure out what this one little sentence means, right? God has taken His place in the divine council in the midst of the gods He holds judgment. Look, there are four basic understandings of this phrase. I'm going to lay them all out, and I'm going to tell you where I think, what I think it means. The oldest understanding of this passage of, of God sort of having a meeting with the gods. If you go back to Jewish rabbis, Jewish rabbis said that no, this, this is the people of Israel who received the law of God at Sinai, that God is holding a council meeting with Israel. And uh, the, the second oldest understanding of this passage is not, no, these aren't just common Israel, right? These are judges. These are judges because he's commanding to carry out judgment to rescue. And so he's not just talking to the common Israelite. He's talking to people who ruled over Israelite who were ruling unjustly. Right. Then there's the third more sort of uh, the the later to the party kind of interpretation. And that is this term sons of God that it can refer to angelic beings, as in Daniel chapter 10, who are these angelic princes who rule over nations, right? And the the later one, the the latest, you know, is, is this idea that this is, no, this is near Eastern mythology, that these gods refer to an assembly of divine beings who ruled over the ancient Near East, but they're ruled over by God, who is the supreme creator and sovereign. And people are all over the map. You will be surprised to find people you follow and love and read their stuff on kind of where they are with this, right? I believe the first two options are the most plausible, that this is either all of Israel or this is either real judges in Israel. Here's why. One rule of interpreting hard passages is to first look in the context of the said passage to see if something in the immediate context shed light on the passage that is difficult And I think when you look at verses 1 and 2, where he talks about he holds his counsel in the the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. The other time you see gods in this psalm is down in verse 6. And I think God is saying, hey, I said you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. And so I think whoever the gods are in verse 1 are the same gods in verse 6. And then you get this equivocation that happens in verse six, where he says, you are gods, also sons of the most high. So whoever the gods are, they're also sons of the most high God. Right. So it doesn't make sense to me that they are angels up here in one and two. And then look at verse seven. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any princes. If there are other gods, somehow you're going to become an angel, become like a man and die like regular humans. You just don't, that, that never happens in scripture. You ever see an angel turn into a man? It, don't, that doesn't happen, right? The second rule for interpreting is to see if the New Testament might shed light on it. And it does. The, the only time this psalm is used, verse 82, is directly quoted by Jesus. And so in my theology, I'm kind of saying, okay, If Jesus is going to come and talk about the passage, then whatever Jesus says about the passage has to be what the passage means, right? That's kind of the way I think about it. If Jesus is who he really is, then he's the one who's going to shed light on his Bible. And he does, right? You turn over to John 10, verse 31, and the Jews picked up stones to stone Jesus again. And Jesus asked them, why do you want to stone me? What have I done? I have shown you many good works for which of them are you going to stone me? And then he replied, it is not it is not for a good work that we No, that they replied. It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. You being a man, make yourself God. And then Jesus answered them. Is it not written in your own law? And then he quotes Psalm 6: I said, you are gods. And if God called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken? Do you say of the one the father consecrated and sent into the world that I am blaspheming because I say I am the son of God? That's where the got him ought to kind of play off in your mind, right? Got him, right, you get it? <laughs> what is Jesus saying? Now notice, notice, what it, notice how he unpacks it. If, if God called humans in the Old Testament to whom the word of God came, So notice, right, and I believe sort of in this sort of recreational theology where when God saves you, he forms you back in the image of our maker and we are no longer dead to the things of God. We are no longer following the prince of the power of the air who is now at work in sons of disobedience, but we in our very natures have been restored and will be perfected in glory. That that process starts to happen. It really starts to happen. And notice what Jesus says, Whom God called gods to whom the word of God came. It's the word of God that these people had believed and assented to that somehow restored them and made them different from the nations and different from everyone else on the planet. And here's what Jesus says. If you have in your Bibles a precedent where God joins himself and his work and his mission to humans and exalts them so that humans live on the earth as divine representatives. Don't you know that a greater person is now here? You already have a case for what I'm here and doing. God joined himself to humans in the Old Testament. And now here I am, really God of really God in human flesh. And now you're acting like this is crazy. He says, no, there's a precedent. Therefore, I don't think this is angels. These are people at the table. And that's why G.K. Bill says, Jesus saw this passage as referring to humans, people empowered by the word and spirit to act on God's behalf. Therefore, when you read this, who's at the table? It's people, not ancient Near East gods, not angels. If God called Israel in the Old Testament, gods and sons of the Most High, How much more does that apply to us? We've been adopted into his family through our union with Jesus. Who's at the table then, beloved? It's people. And I want to have a little nuance here. This isn't just all believers, right? He's not calling the fatherless to this council meeting. He's not calling the weak to this council meeting. He's not calling the afflicted and the destitute and the weak and the needy. They're out there not being cared for. The question is, who does he summon to the meeting? Those with fathers and those who are strong and those who are not afflicted and those who are not destitute. In other words, he is calling not just common believers, but he is calling people who have stability and influence and power. That's who he's meeting with. Now, here's the mistake you can't make when you read this. Don't read race into it. Because I know that when some of us hear like fatherless, we look at the stats of of fatherless black homes and we kind of assume that when the psalmist wrote this psalm that 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 black people kind of occupy the fatherless and the orphan and the widow and the needy and the destitute right and then when we look at who has influence and privilege that's kind of a buzzword out there right now privilege and we kind of we kind of think white equals wealth right and white equals privilege Look, don't read race into this psalm. There's a lot of psalms that talk about ethnicity. There's a lot of scriptures that talk about race. But trust me, this psalm right here, it ain't got nothing to do with race. It got everything to do with class. See, what's the danger? See, if you think that this, if you read black equals fatherless, then here's the thing you will not think that black people have means and that we need to be at the table asking ourselves, are we loving the poor? Right. That's how you tease that logic out. And that's how you walk away from it. And 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 if you think that privilege equals white, then guess what? You will undermine and not take seriously the white poor. Oh, y'all. ain't Y'all ain't really poor. We poor. Y'all ain't poor. You know, like you going to have that debate. Don't bring that debate into this passage. I've seen black people with means. With college degrees and paid off their mortgage, and got their kids in the best schools, and I've seen poor white people. I had the privilege, and I call it a privilege, of growing up in the Queens. 5426, Queen Christina Lane spent half of my life in the Queens. My parents did not go to college. My mom got married to my dad when she was 18. She had me when she was 21. They didn't go to college they chose to work at a factory in Brookhaven. And so you can imagine, right? An 18 year old woman getting married, who doesn't go to college, who then works in a factory. So earning potential, right? It was just kind of delayed, right? And so we spent the half of my life in the Queens, right? Just like everybody else who was trying to start out and make a living, right? And my next door neighbor was an Indian immigrant her name was shuvanah, right? I just remember her name. I don't know why I remember her name, right? Her folks had had nothing either right and my across-the-street neighbor was a white family, right? We was all just kind of like barely kind of making it right and then they broke in my house and stole my daddy's stereo, right? The white people across the street (laughs) Just being real and my folks they kind of made a little bit, and we moved to North Jackson—not Northeast Jackson, that was still all white. We moved to North Jackson, down the street from Callaway in a in a smaller subdivision called Norwood. And I moved over into Norwood, and we the working class, working class Black people. You had some teachers, you had some factory workers. Some dude worked at Comcast. My dude across the street was a fireman. I mean, we were kind of like a working class. Now I rode my bike into Lakeover. Now, if you don't know what Lakeover is. That's what black folks got some money and they been had money, right? Rode my bike into Woodley. And so here's a privilege of what, what I got to see growing up. That black people, we, we, we can, we can get means and get degrees and do our thing. And white does not always equal wealth wealth. This passage is not racialized. You have to read this passage through the lens of socioeconomic have and have nots. Who's at the table? I'm at the table and you're at the table. If you drove here this morning in a car and you put gas in it and it works, you're at the table. And I know you think you're poor because you go to seminary, but I'm telling you, you're, you're not like for real poor, you know? Right? Well, come on, let's be really honest. That if you're going to leave here and got somewhere to lay your head and you're not sharing it with 20 other people because you're in a, ha- you know, a house, you you at the table. And if you can pay your rent or your mortgage, you might get behind a little bit, but you still got somewhere to stay, you're at the table. And if you wake up early enough to get your little ones off for school or your husband off to work, you're at the table and I'm at the table. I'm at the table. And if you're here in this church and life is hard right now. We're here. I don't presume that just because you're here this morning. that life is just good right now. I think if we take, honestly, Scripture, you're a gift to our church. To have you in here and to be struggling and to be trying to raise kids on your own, to be encountering injustice, we don't want you to feel like you got to go somewhere else to fit in. That, no, you can have a place right here. That there are ministries, work life, if you're underemployed, and you wanna get better training, you stay here. That if you're behind on your rent, then you meet with our deacons and they manage a fund that when every person in this church gives, a portion of your giving goes to a fund to help the poor. You fill out your paperwork, you meet with our deacons, it is anonymous. I don't see who and when they meet. And you let us do some of this with you. Let us walk with you. The third thing is the peril of our negligence. Now that Jesus has reminded us that people are at the table with a measure of security, what is the connection with calling them to the meeting to talk about the people over here who aren't the meeting? Because Jesus expects that there is a bridge. He's calling people to the meeting who can do something about the problem in his kingdom. What we start to see is that the people who have privilege and rights and means and stability, that there is negligence on their part. And you see it in verse two. How long will you judge unjustly? Now, some people see judge unjustly and they say, got him. That's a, that, that is judge language. Don't do that. Here's why. Listen to what Zechariah says in Zechariah seven. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgment, same vocabulary, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless or the poor, but they refuse to pay attention. They refuse to listen to his spirit through the prophets. Thus says the Lord, I scattered my people among the nations. God did not just scatter judges. He scattered all of Israel because all of Israel We're not doing what they were supposed to do. What about Micah? He has told you, oh man, what is good and what does God, the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God, right? This is not a blanket statement for judges, right? What about Job 29? Job says, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me because I promised to care for his widow. I was the eyes to the blind and the feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. That's Job. You see it over and over and over again. This rescue language is not just for kings and judges in Israel. This ethic was supposed to trickle down and be something that the common Jewish follower of God embraced. And they weren't. And he says, how long, right? Will you show partiality to the wicked? That phrase right there, showing partiality to the wicked, we've seen it before. We see it every time we hear number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face upon you. And here's what they were doing there. They were lifting up the face of the wicked. Upside down. And that's why James says, beloved, why do you show partiality? Why when someone poor who walks in next to someone who was wealthy, you tell the poor person, hey, you go over there. Hey, I'm not going to shake your hand. Hey, I'm looking at the dude in the money suit, right? James says, why do you do that? You see, this is not just something... The Old Testament followers wrestled with James and us. And therefore, the command, the commands give justice. Why? Because they weren't. Maintain the rights of the afflicted. Why? Because they weren't. Rescue the weak and the needy because they weren't. Now, what's the danger? I think the danger you see in verse six It says, therefore, I said, you are God, son of the most high, look at what I've done for you. Look at the crown of dignity that I've given you. And because you have been negligent, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and you shall fall like any prince. You see kind of right there, what's gonna happen? Doesn't that sound a lot like revelation? where he says, remember where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Same force of emphasis. This is a big deal. Like, don't ignore it. That's what James is saying. That's what Revelation is saying. That's what the Psalm is saying. The foundations of the earth are shaken to a degree that God knows that we live in a broken and fallen world and here's what happened. God puts these foundations in place, right, that are supposed to ease the fall. So if you're poor and you fall, you're supposed to fall and it's, your fall is supposed to have a bottom. And what, what, what bottoms out your fall is justice and righteousness. That when you fall, there is a floor to your falling. There is a ground, right? King David. OK, buddy, you get injustice. You still the king, right? Your, your falling has a limit. What happens when there is no justice and righteousness for the poor, they keep falling and falling and falling and falling. That's what God is saying. The foundations are shaking. And this safety gap that I put in place to care for those who have nothing, that because we're not doing justice and thinking about mercy and thinking about those who have none, that there is no floor there anymore. That's the image. What does their disobedience do to the poor? I think he's talking about in verse five, he's the, the they is the poor, that they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. In other words, because we give them no floor, they don't see and they don't understand. And they're asking God, where are you? You say you have a heart for me, but I don't see it. You say that you will not put more on me, right? And I know that's not in the Bible, right? But just this idea that God is near, right? And he can be there. And all of a sudden, because we don't see it lived out through the lives of other people, it starts to color our image of God. That's what God is saying. They don't see, they don't know. They walk in darkness. That is damaging to his glory. It colors how they see him. Is he not strong, is he not kind, is he not gracious? Look, have you ever heard the cry of the fatherless? I'll read it. Sean Carter, also known as Jay-Z, one of my favorite songs. Um, here's what he writes. My mom's nursing self-esteem issues. Around our, heart. our house, it was hard to fly in a clean tissue. Minus her tears. To rewind this time I promise I'd minus my years to the day to take this pain away It seems sunny outside but it always rained on Jay Pops you my umbrella come help your son with the weather Soon we come together like man and man and Bill. Let's play spades, cards face up, I've come to deal. In order to get right, we gotta deal with this wrong. And the pain I felt all of my life, you will feel in this song. Your lack of warmth left a chill in the morn. Your lack of love left me loveless and I'm of your breath. I'm your mind, your body, your soul, your heart, your flesh. Your alcohol, your smoking results, I'm a mess, dad. Still I love you no less, dad. I hope you didn't think success would make me less mad. I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. We wasted years. I swear to God, I wanted him to take me away from here. If you taught me anything, the one thing you taught me was to face my fears, coward. How could you let me grow without you, grind in this rap game, and take dough without you? Wear my shoes close to the sole without you. Family pictures posed without you. Why? Why shouldn't I be mad? Monster's parents separated. Monster still had his dad. These parents had their problems, but he still came to the pad. He bought them new bikes. Imagine what that felt like. I used to have to bump my head to go to sleep at night. You hear that? That's a fatherless grown man talking about how he felt as a fatherless boy. Now, don't you just want to, like, grab Jay-Z and give him a hug? Don't you want to, like, go and buy him a bike, right? And get the dude some shoes, right? You see, my fear is that we hear something like that and we dismiss it. Oh, that's just that gangster rap. No, that dude is being honest about what it was like growing up fatherless. And that is the cry of fatherless children. Why we got family pictures and you not in the pic and you're not there. Why all the other kids got bikes and mama making it off of one check and I don't, we don't have extra money. Why wouldn't school roll around? I'm wearing old shoes, right? That's the cry of the fatherless And that's why the proverb says, speak up for those who have no rights, who can't speak for themselves. This call to doing justice and rescuing the weak and protecting the rights of the poor and standing in the gap of the vulnerable, it is not anti-government. Government is ordained by God. Government is given to play a portion, right? A portion of caring for the afflicted. Right. And family units, your own family unit. It is not anti what God is saying here. You read Timothy. Timothy says, look, when you got a widow in your family, go find her own kids first. But here's the mistake that I think we make. We think that the only responsible responsibility for caring for the poor is either government or family. And God says, no, there's a third category. And it's the church. It's the church believers. And if you think about what we say versus what we do, I think every one of us in this room will be guilty. Guilty of not seeing, guilty of turning a blind eye, guilty of creating some crafty doctrine called the spirituality of the church and saying that the church should only focus on preaching the gospel Guilty of maybe not seeing ourselves as having means to actually care about the poor and thinking that this is something for someone else who has way more money than I do. Or thinking that the solution is to just preach the gospel and we have no compassionate deeds or being all about good deeds and we neglect to share the truth of the gospel. We don't talk to them about hell and judgment. We just buy them shoes. You get the point? That the gospel tells us that we're free. We're free to bring our guilt, our guilt before a righteous and holy God and to say, I'm wrong. I'm selfish. I'm blinded by my privilege and my means. And I have insulated my life from those who are suffering. The gospel says every one of us in this room, we're free to come to God with that posture. We don't have to deflect. We don't have to come up with some crafted doctrine. We don't have to say, man, I wish pastor would stop talking about this. This is right here in the text. I'm not making this up. And here's the response of God. Notice verse eight. There's a shift. It reads as if one through seven people can't get right. And so the psalmist prays, arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. And that's what you see in our last point, the response of God. God goes to work. He's asking for divine intervention. And we believe that divine intervention has happened. We believe that God did rise and God did come. And Jesus is the solution. Like we believe that God came in the person of Jesus and Jesus came doing justice. Look, I know we got some social. I, I don't even like the word social justice anymore. It's kind of tired and, and it can mean a ton of stuff. I kind of like what John Wesley called it. He called it social holiness. That was his phrase, right? Your holiness should spill over into your social networks that that was kind of his phrase and I like it right here's the thing I don't care how just disoriented we are you have to believe that the most just oriented person to ever walk the earth was Jesus you just got to believe it right and here's what you're learning about Jesus he came doing justice that his first sermon preached in Luke 4, he stood up in a synagogue and he read from Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover sight to the blind and to set liberty all who are oppressed. He rolled the scroll up, sat down and says, hey, today this is being fulfilled in your hearing. And what does Jesus do after he leaves the synagogue? He goes, starts ministry amongst lepers, amongst paralytics, amongst blind people, amongst widows. In other words, he's like, look, I'm the walking embodiment of Psalm 82. I'm about that life for real, right? When John the Baptist is about to die, John says, hey, are you the real Messiah? You know what he tells John's disciples? This is what you tell John. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, And the poor have good news preached to them. Now, think about that. When John is about to be beheaded and he is doubting if Jesus is the Messiah, I mean, Jesus' evidence isn't on his beautiful works in the temple. His evidence to John the Baptist, as John is about to get his head cut off, is the poor. They hear the good news. In other words, what is Jesus saying? I'm about that life. I'm the one Psalm 82 is talking about. I'm going to come to earth and I'm going to do what y'all scared to do and what you justify not doing. I'm going to get dirty and be ridiculed. I'm going to be about that life. You get it? And here's the reason that's important. A lot of people will guilt you into justice. And guilt isn't the motivation. It doesn't work. Not for me. But when I think that my savior and my God and my king was more bent toward justice than I can ever be, that when I think that my savior and my God and my king really did have nothing on earth, when I think that he really did go and minister to the have-nots in communities, when I think that he really did go to the poor, it's powerful, right? We believe, beloved, that Jesus has done this. And we also believe that he came and he suffered the greatest injustice under the heavens. That every blind eye, every theological justification not to engage in ministries of mercy, every sin of partiality, every siding with the wicked and trampling over and ignoring the vulnerable. You know what your Savior says? He says, put that on my account judge me father and on the cross the foundations of the earth they shook again in matthew 27. why did they shake in matthew 27 because royal justice was being carried out we shook them in our sin and god says i'm going to pay for that in my son and they'll shake again and the good news says that he who was rich Became poor to make you rich that he who had been at home with his father from all eternity became fatherless to rescue you and I from our father, the devil. He who had a home in glory with the father became homeless to bring you and I back to the house of the father. And God reached into our poverty and our powerlessness To save us. And that is the good news, beloved. Your righteousness has already been rendered to the throne and your judgment has already been paid by the Messiah. And guess what? We're free to move into caring and compassionate postures of living because we have a new spirit living in us who compels us to care, who compels us to see who compels us to hold loosely to our resources, who compels us to be unafraid. See, we believe that Peter says in the way that Jesus entrusted himself to the just judge in the the flip side of that coin is to also do justice as Jesus did it. And here's what you see Jesus doing all in his ministry. He didn't just give bread to the poor. He gave them bread and he preached the gospel to them. He didn't just heal lepers of their their sin. He healed lepers of their sin and washed their souls clean. Right. He didn't just tell the woman at the well, hey, here goes some water. He says, no, I'm the living water that what you see Jesus doing as he approached justice was twofold. He always cared about the temporal and he cared about the eternal. And sometimes people's way into the gospel. You got to give me some food, buddy. When you give me some food and my stomach stop growling, then I can listen to you talk to me about the bread of heaven. Right. But sometimes it works the other way where they, they come to faith. Through hearing and preaching, and then he does compassionate deeds. And here is the way of the cross the way that we live socially holy lives moving forward. It's caring about both. I care about your fatherlessness, and I wanna be there, and I wanna introduce you to my Father in heaven. You see how it works? It's not an either or, it's a new way forward. And so there is joy there, family, a lot of joy. Here's some questions to think through. Who are the weak and needy in your sphere of life? What skills and passions has God given you to leverage? How can you marry word and deed ministry? Where must we repent and believe the gospel? Some of you, God, may be calling to adopt or foster. Maybe you're tired of injustice in the legal system and you want to go to law school Maybe you're tired of corrupt politics and you want to run for office. Maybe God has been putting whatever burden on your heart. Maybe to start a nonprofit. I don't know what God is saying, but I do know that this passage needs to have some feet and some hands on it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you and do pray that you would do your work in our hearts. Father, it's such a blessing to be at a church who wrestles with this it's evident in ministries that you've created. It's evident in the lives of your members who are faithfully serving you uh, in hard places. Father, I thank you for the way that you've gifted us with this grace and do pray that you would continue to mature us after the image of Christ. We love you and praise you. In his name we pray. Amen.